Hi, from New York City, I'm Freddy Ramirez of Restrung Magazine, and you're listening to Racquetball Restrung. Racquetball Restrung is an opportunity to hear from leaders, players, and influencers in the sport of racquetball, to hear their perspectives on the state of the sport today, as well as to get some insight on their careers and the influences that keep them passionate about racquetball. If you're familiar with Restrung Magazine or are a regular or sometimes reader of my blog, then my hope is that you find the conversations you hear on Racquetball Restrung relevant and insightful. If you're just hearing about Restrung Magazine and have even a small interest in racquetball, then please check out restrungmagazine.com or restrungmag.com. Also, follow us on Facebook, and we can be found on Twitter and Instagram. Definitely worth the look. We never post the same content on the feeds. It's been a while since our last session of Racquetball Restrung, and I was reminded of how enlightening these conversations can be for me personally, and I'm grateful for the opportunity. On that note, I also want to extend my thanks to Gearbox Sports for the continued support. Check them out and what they do for the sport. My conversation in this session of Racquetball Restrung is with Jason Thorner. Jason was recently selected as the executive director of USA Racquetball by their board of directors to replace Steve Zarnecki after his resignation of the position. Jason has a long history with the sport of racquetball. He played on the international racquetball tour for 15 years, where he was a top 10 player. He was a part of 10 U.S. national teams. He joined the USA Racquetball board of directors in 2012, where he later became vice president, then president. Jason and I have known each other for several years and have had numerous conversations about the state of racquetball. During our session, Jason discusses his background in racquetball. I asked Jason about his specific mandates as executive director, where he discusses organizational structure and how USA Racquetball identifies priorities, planning, and mission goals. Jason talked about engagement with clubs, colleges, high schools, juniors, developing programming, and diversity within the sport of racquetball. He shares the challenges USA Racquetball faces with the growth and participation in other competing sports. Jason also talks about the importance of marketing and shares his opinions regarding the role pro tours should have and how he sees USA Racquetball in relation to the tours. He also shares his views on the level of play on the tours, the tours operating independently, USA Racquetball's formal and informal relationship with the tours, the business model of the tours, the portable court, the burden on tournament directors, and the difference in engagement between players on the pro tours today and pro players when he toured. I'll get to it. My conversation with Jason Thorner. Jason, man, thanks for taking the time to speak with me, and I totally appreciate it. So do you refer to USA Racquetball all the time as USA Racquetball, or do you have like an acronym that you use? Do you use USRA or do you use USAR? It's funny because as I've gotten into the role, I've always called the association USA Racquetball. But as we get into uh, the position, you know, paperwork and how we're actually uh, – Legally, it's United States Racquetball Association. Uh, but everything that I refer to is either USA Racquetball or USAR, um, which is just a, a shortened version of USA Racquetball. Right. But that's a good question. Right. And, and I know that floating around the Internet and in some people's minds, uh, you know, it's, it's still like I even see bylaws that are out there in some states that say AARA. 
you know, there, there were plenty of names, but we're trying to brand everything as USA Racquetball. And I think you'll see that, uh, when you go to our website, we've just made the change on our email addresses. So everything going forward will be USA Racquetball. While we're on the subject, how long have you been involved with USA Racquetball, like on any level? Well, I guess it goes all the way back to when I first started playing as a junior, you know, about seven years old. So I'm 43 now and not afraid to admit that, but, uh, you know, it's, it's been a lifelong pursuit for me all the way from the junior level through high school into college on the pro tour U.S. team. Uh, I've served on state boards. I've served on the national board and now stepping into the executive director role. So, you know, people ask me about my education. I tell them I have a PhD in racquetball. I've done just about anything and everything in racquetball, whether that's, uh, you know, as a player, as a state board member, a national board member, a U.S. team member, all the way down to managing a club and owning a club. So, you know, I, I think I've got a pretty unique perspective when it comes to the sport. Well, I'm, I'm glad you talked about that. Of course, you were one of my uh, mentions in my top 10 this year, and I did mention that it was a traditional pick in terms of someone with extensive experience in racquetball, but for like organizations as big as USA Racquetball, it's kind of non-traditional. So we can talk about that a little bit. And again, I want to congratulate you, man. I, I think it's a big deal that they went with you. I mean, I wish you all the luck. You and I have had conversations in the past. And you've always seemed pretty open. And um, like I mentioned in the article, I'm pretty optimistic on the things that you could do within the organization. So, again, congrats. Well, I appreciate it. And it really is, you know, as you know, I worked for Head 10 for many, many years and on the sales side of things. And also as a player was sponsored by them. And I honestly never saw myself leaving the Head 10 family. Um, but you know what? When your dream job comes along and something that you feel like you've been groomed for and you can make a difference in, uh, you know, you've got to make that make that change. And this this was probably that once in a lifetime opportunity where I would you know, leave somewhere where I was very, very comfortable and had been for quite some time, uh, you know, to take this challenge on. So for me, it's, you know, people will say, oh, well, you know, how much money are you making or, you know what? it's not about the money when it comes to this position for me. It's about what can I do to help the sport that's helped me over the years. I mean, all my friends, my family, everything is intertwined in the racquetball. So for me, this is just uh, my way of how can I help racquetball? Right. Well, it's a good point. You being with a manufacturer for so long and considering the state of the sport and the roles that the manufacturers play, which are key roles within the sport itself, whether it's promotional or just growth and the support that they put behind it, having that insight is, uh, I would imagine, is very helpful. Also, I'm sure that most people know, some people may not know, but you were the, was it the unofficial or was it the official referee for the IRT for for how many years? And that's a tough job. I know that was uh, something that you did for a long time. Do people often bring that up to you? 
Uh, they do. I try to put that out of my mind as much as possible. <laughs> you know, it, it was a very tough role. Um, you know, it's it's never easy. You're never going to be 100 percent correct. And for about seven years, uh, I was the official referee on the IRT and helped Dave Negretti uh, as much as I could run the tour as well. So, you know, I I definitely have that that tour perspective, and you know. I don't wish that job upon anyone. It's very, very difficult to, to be a rep at the pro level. And, you know, you're also refereeing people that you are friends with and, you know, you try not to be biased. You're trying to be as impartial as possible. And, you know, uh, I tip my hat to Charlie Pratt, who came along at the end of my playing career and said, Hey, you know, I'd like to help you out. And I, I pretty much passed the baton and ran away as quickly as possible. Uh, so, you know, if it wasn't for Charlie, I would never have uh, gotten a chance to retire. I don't. That's pretty funny, man. Like I hear you, man. That is a tough job. No one can question your, your patience when it comes to your experience. So in that sense, that, that's a positive thing. All right. So let's get down to kind of like some serious questions about the role. What are your specific mandates that you're charged with now when it comes to USA Racquetball as the executive director? I think most people aren't quite clear what that entails. So if you can give us or give me kind of a broad overview of what your duties are, that would be helpful. Sure. You know, and everything is mandated from USA Racquetball's board of directors. And they really set the overall vision for what the association is going to accomplish. And then it's up to the executive director, who happens to be myself at this point, uh, to try to fulfill that mission. And uh, that, that entails several things. That's, you know, managing the finances of the association, uh, managing the staff and creating programs, uh, managing our national events, sanctioning uh, tournaments at the local level or on the national level. And it's not just here in the U.S., but it's also I'm the conduit between USA Racquetball and the international uh, federations that are that are out there. So, right. uh, so that's a brief synopsis of, of what I do uh, and what I'm in charge of. But uh, it's ever changing. I'll be honest. You know, we were very focused on just the competitive player over the past few decades. Uh, and that, that focus has shifted now to how do we grow the game at the grassroots level? Uh, so that's a major shift in mentality, uh, that we're undergoing in the past, uh, about a year and a half right. since we've come up with the new, uh, the new strategic mission. Right. Uh, so that's, that, that's a whole new realm for the office. They were very focused on the competitive player tournaments. Okay, that's that's great, but it's such a small portion of our sport. And if we want the sport to grow and thrive overall, we can't just focus on that very, very small minority that are the competitive players. We have to reach out to the club owners. We have to reach out to the recreational player that maybe plays once or twice a month or maybe even less. Um, The people that are in leagues, the people that are playing, you know, the local club shootouts that aren't sanctioned. Right. Uh, you know, it's our mission now to to reach out to those people and let them know, hey, USA Racquetball is here. We're here to help, and you know, we want to do whatever we can to help grow the sport. All right. 
That's awesome. I'll probably go back and touch on a couple of those things that you mentioned, try to get some specifics in terms of the things that you actually are doing. But uh, I'll backtrack a little bit. How do things, I mean, you mentioned the board is what drives the agenda. How does that normally work? And how are agendas um, presented within the board and how do they vote on that kind of stuff? Uh, I ask only in that I'm curious to know um, what the process is for looking at specific things within the sport. How does that get on the board's table and how does that work? And then how is it your job to kind of make that happen? Sure. You know, when it comes to strategic planning, uh, we had a conference, a leadership conference about three years ago that brought together everyone in the sport between national board directors, state board directors, the pro tours, uh, manufacturers, other interested parties. Uh, and they, they were uh, facilitated by a United States Olympic Committee uh, strategic planning uh, person that specializes in reworking strategic plans. And, you know, all the ideas were laid out at that time. And, you know, and once all the ideas were laid out, it took the board about another year of going through those ideas and really sifting through and seeing what were the priorities for short-term, mid-range, and long-term plans. Uh, so then, you know, the board votes on that and approves that plan. And then what happens at that point is it gets disseminated out to the executive director who is in charge of, you know, finding the programs, putting programs in place uh, that are going to accomplish those goals. Now, as far as, let's say someone had a, a great idea and they want to have USA Racquetball implement it, um, the process there is that it usually goes to one of the committees that uh, that is out there for initial review. So let's say it's a rule change that you'd like to see. That would go to the rules committee. And the rules committee would look at it. They would uh, weigh the pros and cons. And if they decided that this was something that uh, would be beneficial to the sport, then they bring that to the full board. Uh, and the full board you know, will research it, speak with the committee members, get their feedback, and then they'll make a decision on that. And then once that decision is made, then that's translated over to the executive director. And it's my responsibility to uh, make sure that whatever that idea is that's been passed, that we can implement that at the staffing level. Okay. So basically your directive for USAR has changed, just to kind of recap what we talked about earlier. Whereas for the past few years, USA Racquetball has focused on the competitive player, you're now going back to the roots of racquetball, right? Which is the club player, colleges, high schools, things like that. What are the specific things that USA Racquetball is doing to accomplish that goal? Sure. You know, and it's, you know, I've had a little bit of a hand in this even as a board member, as president and vice president over the last couple of years in developing these programs. Uh, along with our uh, past executive director, Steve Zarnacki. And one of those focuses on facility programs and what can we do to help facilities? Um, you know, how do we teach people in these facilities that have racquetball courts how to properly utilize those? Because we have seen over the years that if you have a programmer in your club that's running leagues, they're running tournaments, 
They're doing, you know, challenge court nights, uh, things along those lines. And, you know, very similar to tennis where you have a club pro or a, a golf club pro. You know, it's all about getting people to interact with each other and, and the game. So uh, we've got the facility partner program, you know, to really give information to the clubs on how to, you know, program for racquetball. And then what we've also developed uh, that's just brand new and launching is our ambassador program. And that's someone that's in a club that loves the sport and is already uh, maybe doing one of these things. Maybe they're running a league. Maybe they're giving some lessons. Uh, maybe they're running a shootout or a tournament, you know, a, a couple times a year. And what we've tried to do is reach out to these people and give them as much information as possible in the tools in order to grow the sport in their own area, whether that's press releases about uh, doing a free racquetball 101 class for people in your community where they can come in, try out the sport. They don't have to have their own equipment. Come in, try it out. Uh, maybe get a free two-week pass to the club uh, if the club is on board with that, just to try the sport out. Um, other things are getting members that are already in the club right. re-energized. And we've done that with free challenge ladders. Right. Uh, we've got league software where if you play in a USA racquetball sanctioned league, instead of just getting points at the club and in your league, you're also gaining ranking points with USA racquetball. Oh, okay. um, so, you know, these are some of the things that we've started to do uh, on the club level, trying to reach out to those recreational people. The other thing is our e-membership, and this is huge for us right now. Uh, we don't think that every person out there is going to pay $50 to be a competitive member, and that's okay. But we developed this e-membership to reach out to those recreational players and give them, you know, here's some tips on how to improve your game. Uh, they get access to our, our National Racquetball magazine. Uh, where they can follow along with what's going on with the pro tours, what's going on with, you know, national events or events that are local in their area that has been happening. Uh, just to generate more interest. Because I'll tell you, as a salesperson for Head Pen over the years, I've gone through hundreds of clubs throughout the country. And I'll walk in there and just ask people, you know, are you a USA Racquetball member? And what I hear back, Nine out of ten times is I don't even know what USA Racquetball is. Wow. You know, and, and the sad part is, you know, I know you and I are going to get into this a little bit later on the pro tours, but the sad part is, is that many people, when I go in and ask them, do you know about USA Racquetball? Do you know any of the pros on the pro tour? 99% of those people have no clue there's a pro tour. Wow. Whether that's men's or ladies. I mean, and that to me, being at the top of the sport and trying to lead it is a little, a little bit depressing right. to know that the majority of people out there don't even recognize that there's a national governing body or that there are pro tours. Right. Well, it's interesting that you mentioned the pro tours. Uh, one of my questions probably a little further on would be how important do you think a pro tour is to the development of racquetball or the resurgence or however you want to define it. But quick question, how many clubs are there that actually have racquetball in the United States or a court? Right now we have a list and that'll be uh, also rolling out something that we're pretty excited about. And 
<clears throat> here in January, we'll be rolling out a find the club. So it'll be an interactive map. You'll type in your location or if there's a location you're going to and you want to find a club in your area, you'll be able to type your address in and it will populate uh, the clubs that are closest to you. Right. right now, we have about 2,700 facilities that have at least one racquetball court in them. Mm-hmm. That could be a YMCA, that could be an LA Fitness, a Lifetime Fitness, who is one of our official partners, um, an independently owned club. It could be just about anything, a college, a university, a high school that might have something. Right. Uh, we try to document as many clubs as possible with this program. Right. Right. So um, you mentioned colleges and high school. Perfect segue, because I was going to ask you about that. Talk to me about what USA Racquetball is doing in terms of working with colleges and moving forward in terms of relationships with colleges. And how does that look like? How many colleges does USA Racquetball actually work with? Or is there an organization? Sure. You know, and that's that's one of the key areas of growth that we see for racquetball. Most of the major universities that are out there are building these brand new multi-million dollar rec centers for their students. And, you know, and they're putting racquetball courts in just about all of those. So that's a a pretty exciting thing for us. Um, I don't think we've even, you know, tapped into that market very, very small. I mean, we we probably have, we have about 80 clubs for uh, teams that are out there at colleges right now, but I know we have a lot more uh, colleges that they're even teaching racquetball as a class. You know, a lot of the uh, students have to take at least a certain amount of credits in uh, physical education before they graduate, and racquetball happens to be one of those classes. Wow. And I walk in the universities all the time and see how many kids are playing and you know, do they know how to play properly? Not all the time, but there again is some of the, uh, you know, some of the things that we're trying to reach out. And Nick Irvine is heading this up as far as our collegiate programs. And he's developing a, along with our master instructors, an actual online course for not only the students, but also for the instructor that's teaching these racquetball classes. To let them know, here's how you properly teach the game of racquetball. Uh, so that's pretty exciting to us that we're putting together an actual course book for the collegiate level uh, for those classes. You know, we're trying to get all of those kids that are signing up for these classes to become free e-members so they can learn a little bit more about uh, whether it's the core or whether it's more tips for their game, just to get them excited about it as well. So. Right. right. Uh, one, one area that we're really going to go after hard in 2017 is reaching out to the, uh, to the colleges. And you know, not everyone is going to have a team per se that will compete, but they can still be active with the course that they have, whether that's running a challenge court or running a league for their, their school, um, or just the instructors being able to teach these kids the proper way to play the game. Right. No, that's interesting. And you mentioned Nick Irvine. I, you know, I know Nick pretty well and I know it's harder to find anyone who's more enthusiastic about racquetball. So that's awesome. He's got a ton of experience, especially in the clubs. And I know he's been working on the West Coast with a lot of colleges. Is he the one that you lean on in terms of outreach to these colleges? He is, you know, Nick's the, 
person that's making the calls to the colleges. He's trying to find, you know, who is it on the college campus that's either the professor that's teaching these classes or who is it that's in charge of running the club team. Uh, so he's trying to identify those people, and that way we can build our database. You know, before we can do anything, we have to know who we're going after and who we can contact. Right. Uh, it's the same in the clubs, you know, one of U.S. Iraqable's biggest challenges is how do we reach people? Right. And if you don't have someone in each club or in each university that you can actually make contact with, you know, you can send as many magazines and other marketing materials as you want. It just ends up in the uh, the good old file 13 wastebasket. Right. No, I get that. I understand how... Uh how difficult the outreach could be and how focused and targeted you have to be in order to be able to do that. You know, in terms of growing the sport in areas where you non-traditionally have it, I know I mentioned to you before, if you guys actually have been thinking about community colleges, often those are really, really great places to find players that you normally wouldn't traditionally be able to reach as a suggestion i've always advocated for those kinds of things and i'm glad you have nick irvine who um is as you know like a hard worker definitely one of the hardest working guys in racquetball so um yeah I mean, nick's great and he's out there pounding the, the payment and making phone calls every day and sending emails out to people and you know he's new in the position as well here a couple months so you know he's learning as he goes but you know, I, I want to address your, your community college point there. And, you know, I guess this is an overall philosophy of mine. and Maybe that needs to be stated here. Uh, I don't discriminate against anyone, any type of play of our sport whatsoever. So if you're at a community college, you're at, you know, even if you're at a trade school, if you have a racquetball court, you're part of the college program as far as I'm concerned. That's awesome. If you play racquetball outdoor or you play racquetball indoor, you're a part of USA Racquetball in my view. You know, that's the one thing I think we've not done a good job of. And I think you'll see some huge things coming out and very quickly in 2017 is my goal is to bring the sport together. Right. And Everyone, whether you are a recreational player, you're a pro, you're a U.S. team member, you're an indoor, you're outdoor, you're a college player, a high school player, a junior player, a senior player, it doesn't matter to me. We're all USA Racquetball, and we all need to be in the same boat, going the same direction, promoting the sport. Right now, what we have is we have different entities going in 17 different directions, looking out for themselves, and it's not getting us anywhere. Right. So we all need to come together. We all need to work together to promote the sport, to grow it at the grassroots level. If the grassroots level grows, you know what? Great, because then that means opportunity for the higher level, the competitive players. They've got more people to play with. I get people telling me all the time, you know, I remember back when. Yeah, I remember back when, too. I was playing in Houston where we had, you know, draw sheets that were four draw sheets full for the you know, for the open division alone. Wow. You know, I remember the things. You know, they're 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 not here right now. We've got much smaller draws, but if we were to build the, the base and we were to let people know about USA racquetball and get them excited about the sport again, then you know what? That just filters on up. And right. you know, one of our goals is to grow things at the high school level. Because what we've seen and this is very true in the 
St. Louis area and up in Oregon. Those kids that learn racquetball and get excited about racquetball at the high school level, what's the next thing they do? They go to college. 90% of our kids go to college, one way or another, whether it's a community college or a full university, they're going to college. You know, when they get to college, what we're seeing now is they've developed that love for racquetball at the high school level. Now they get to a college, and let's say I get to a college, but I don't have a racquetball team there. Well, you know what? I was on a racquetball team in high school. I'll start a racquetball team at that college. And that just perpetuates the cycle. So then you get more people involved. You go out and you find your friends there at college. You get them on your team. You're growing the sport. What happens when you're done with college? Okay, you go out, you get a job. Now you've got a little bit of money, and you want to join a gym. Oh, hey, this gym has racquetball. This one doesn't. I love playing racquetball. I've played racquetball since high school. I went to a gym that has racquetball. So that's the gym you're going to join. Right. You know, and that's the cycle that we've got to, you know, we've really got to start that again. You know, we've let our junior programs falter, uh, you know, and some of that is access to clubs. And I hear it every day. You know, we don't have access to our 14 and under players at LA Fitness, which LA Fitness is a huge club system. Right. And, and I understand that. And it's not something that I can just say, oh, well, we're going to change that. I would love to change that. LA Fitness's policy is, is different. They don't want to let the children in there. Now, does that mean that we just throw our hands up and don't keep having a conversation with them? Right. Absolutely not. We right. have to have that, that conversation with them. Right. And we're working on that. And Nick is actually with the free challenge ladder program that we've rolled out here in the past couple of weeks. Uh, he's been actually having these conversations with the LA Fitness upper management. And they're starting to see that, hey, USA Racquetball is trying to help us. They're trying to get members excited about playing racquetball. And it used to be just, no, we're not going to deal with this. No, we're not going to have anything to do with USA Racquetball. At least now they're starting to listen and have some conversation. So, you know, it's not an overnight process. But the thing that brings, you know, a smile to my face is we have a partnership with another very large uh, club system, which is Lifetime Fitness. We have our U.S. Open there. And John Walensky is a huge partner of USA Racquetball. And he will allow kids from elementary school all the way up through high school to come in and use the courts and learn about racquetball. You know, he's a true champion of our sport. So, wow. uh, you know, if we can get more people like John out there that own clubs that are willing to open up after-school programs for kids or, you know, even homeschool programs, we're looking at how do we get involved with the homeschool kids right. that are looking for physical education. You know, these are things that USA Racquetball right now has really never looked at before, and now we're looking at it. Well, it's interesting that you say that. You brought up a very interesting statistic that could be pivotal in terms of how you look at things. You mentioned that 90% of the kids in high school programs go on to college. I think that's a major deal. I'll mention some other sports uh, as we go along because that's kind of one of the things that you have to look at, um, especially in your position. There are programs across the country that I'm sure you're aware of, like Street Squash, that actually access high school kids and they program for it. And a large majority of those kids end up in really good colleges because of the programming that they come up in. I think looking at it that way, which you mentioned earlier, is pivotal, not only in just the growth of the sport, but also 
in terms of the reach and where you can actually access, you know, new enthusiasts that will become racquetball players for the rest of their lives. I think it's it's pretty important. And you do well. You do good things. I'm looking at those areas. So kudos. You and I have talked about diversity over the past couple of years. And, you know, we have a diversity test from the U.S. Olympic Committee. Uh, and they show what is the diversity of your sport versus other sports. And one of the things that I'm excited about in 2017 is as a member of the U.S. Olympic Committee's Athletes Council over the past couple of years, I've gotten to know some really fantastic people that are giving back a lot in their communities. And uh, one young lady who was on our U.S. volleyball team and is now on the U.S.A. handball team, uh, she's a, a physical education teacher in Baltimore. And, uh, you know, she's always looking for different things to teach her students at the elementary level, you know, and we got to talking and she says, I, I love racquetball. I played it in college. You know, I used to go out there with the football players from Penn State all the time and wow. those great stories about playing racquetball. She's like, I would love to introduce my inner city kids to the game of racquetball. You know, how could we do this? And I told her, and she goes, you know, we don't really have access to clubs. I said, do you have access to a wall, whether that's inside or in a gym or outside up against the side wall on the playground? She's like, yeah, we, we have access. I said, perfect. I said, we can help you get some rackets, donate some balls, get some eye guards for the kids so they're safe. And you can teach them just up against one wall. So you don't have to have an actual racquetball court in order to teach them the stroke mechanics or, you know, what it's like to hit a ball, you know, you can get the basics down just in a high school gym. Right. So that's something that she brought to her constituents there in Baltimore. And I believe there's eight different schools that are looking to implement this for 2017, 2018 at the elementary school level. So that's you know, good to go hear. They'll go through a program of soccer. They'll go through a program of football, badminton. Now they're going to add racquetball to the, uh, to the offer. No, that's awesome, man. Um, and talking about other sports, I, I know one of the challenges you probably face is the growth of other sports like pickleball, which siphon off players. And that's probably got to be a challenge for you in terms of where your constituents end up spending their time. I mean, it goes without saying that a lot of racquetball players are multi-sport ball players. Like you mentioned earlier, that the person you were talking to in college played racquetball with the football players. You know, my experience has been that sports like football and basketball basketball, active sports, transition easier to racquetball than, say, squash or anything like that. So that's got to be a challenge for you, no? In terms of sports like pickleball coming in and grabbing attention, how do you guys deal with that? Or you guys just focus on what you know and kind of let things play out as they do? It, it is a challenge. You know, and I'll, I'll be honest, it's, it's an, a big challenge at the junior high, high school level. And here's why I say that. You have so many sports, and I have a son and daughter, so I, I see this firsthand. And you have all these other sports, and parents these days, when you look at you know, the cost of college, and you know, which I laugh at because you look at the statistics, and it's like 1% of the players out there actually get a college scholarship. But 
as a parent, we all have that dream that, that our dream. kid could be the next superstar. Yeah. And, you know, <laughs> college scholarship. You yeah. know, what what if football or baseball or basketball, whatever it happens to be, softball for, for the ladies, you know, and other sports. But the reality is there is really no type of scholarship. I mean, we have the USA Racquetball scholarship uh, fund, but it's not like you're getting an NCAA full ride right. to go play racquetball. Right. Um, we have a couple of schools out there that do offer college scholarships, but you know we're not on that level. So we do compete against other sports when parents look and say, well, why is my kid going to stop playing baseball to go play racquetball? Right. You know, there's no, there's no college scholarships there for them. Right. But what we have to do is we have to explain to people how much of a, a great cross trainer racquetball is for those sports. It improves your footwork and improves your eye hand coordination. You know, I had the, uh, the pleasure of running a, a club in Jacksonville, Florida for quite some time when the Jacksonville Jaguars football team had just come into the area. And many of those guys worked out of my club. Wow. And I had their offensive and defensive line coaches come in and play racquetball. And they're like, you know what? I've got to get my defensive line to come in here and play this. This is great for their footwork. Yeah. So three times a week, I had the defensive linemen from the Jacksonville Jaguars come into my club and, and play racquetball. You know, wow. I had NBA basketball players come in and play because it was working on their footwork and their eye-hand coordination, you know. These guys, they all loved it, you know. Right. So it doesn't have to be in all for us and not for other sports. Right. But we have to start marketing our benefits of our sport better. Because, you know, if you burn more calories than just about any other sport, maybe other than swimming. Right. You know, there are so many health benefits to racquetball that, you know, we need to promote those things. And then we can promote the cross-training aspect as well. You know, if you're a baseball player... I can't imagine, you know, hitting a 180 mile per hour racquetball can't help you when you're trying to hit an 80 or 90 mile per hour uh, baseball. Yeah, hand-eye, man. So, you know, you look you look at that hand-eye coordination and timing. And, you know, we have junior players that have come up through racquetball that, you know, you look at Jeff Conine who won a World Series. Yeah. So... You know, there's a lot of people out there that have come up to racquetball that has benefited them in other sports. Right. And there's nothing wrong with that, no. you know. And you look at the people that are out there playing pickleball. You know, pickleball seems to be the hottest thing that people want to talk about right now. And it depends but, on where you are, but yeah. Yeah, and, and you know what? Some people think, oh, well, I don't want to hear that. Right. You know, it, it's reality. That's the way it is. Racquetball was the same way when we were in the 70s and 80s. You know, we caught on fire and people loved playing it and you know, it, it grew exponentially, just like, you know, I see pickleball doing now. Right. You know, right. There's no reason that we can't have those people that play pickleball play racquetball. Right. Whether that's, you know, they like being outdoors. Okay, well, we've got outdoor racquetball. Right. Right. You know, I want to play with a friend. Okay, well, we've got doubles. You know, we have something for just about everyone. Right. But we've all got to market it along those lines. We can't be combative. Right. Right. It's, it's funny you mentioned outdoor. I mean, I see pickleball as, yeah, of course, it's experiencing some growth. Typically, when you see sports like that, you mentioned racquetball did it in the 70s, had phenomenal growth. Well, that's because people were being introduced to it. But, you know, I see pickleball leveling off. You know, it's like I like playing pickleball, you know, but I also like playing paddle tennis. I also like playing paddle ball. 
not everyone's going to be super competitive or going to choose pickleball to kind of say, all right, I'm going to join ladders and I'm going to do the competitive pickleball thing, you know? So in that sense, I'm not as worried as other people when people start talking about, whoa, pickleball is going to be bigger than racquetball. I don't think so. I think racquetball is a full on sport where you, you know, we're going to talk about the pros. So racquetball is a full on sport. Pickleball is a real sport. You know, it's also a game. Racquetball is a game, but it's also a full on sport. You compare the need for a professional racquetball player to be in shape. The same way you classify a football player or a basketball player, someone's playing at a very high level. And I think if USA Racquetball, and I'm sure you know this because you mentioned it, focuses on racquetball in aggregate, being able to reach outdoor players who, again, I know outdoor players who I mentioned pro racquetball, and it's very regional. They won't know who a Kane or a Sudzy is. And it's surprising to me because we just spend so much of our time in it. I'll segue to the pros, man. How important do you think it is to have a successful or thriving pro tour for the popularity and growth of racquetball? Personally, how do you see it? Well, I'm a little biased because I played on the pro tour. Right. There has to be a pro tour to say that this is a, a, I don't want to say a real sport, but a sport that is thriving. You know, I I think any sport that you look at across the landscape if it's thriving, you have a pro tour as well. You know, and that's really, in my mind, the pro tours are the marketing vehicle of a sport. You know, they can, they can generate a lot of eyeballs very quickly, um, all across not only the country, but the world. Right. And, uh, you know, so I think that's vital. The other thing I think why a pro tour is vital is you've got to give your kids something that they can strive for. And, you know, whether or not these guys are making or, or the ladies even are making millions of dollars like other sports that you see, there are tons of sports out there that don't make millions of dollars. But right. as a kid, you know, growing up, I wanted to be a professional racquetball player. Right. A lot of the other kids I grew up with wanted to do the same. Right. But if there's not a pro tour there, then what do we have to strive for? You know, what am I working? What am I giving up my friend time or my time at the prom or, you know, why am I giving that up if there's no pro tour there? So, you know, it's vital to give, to give, you know, that ultimate level that someone can achieve. Now, does it, you know, I'll be real honest, you know, I did a lot of things over the years playing on the pro tour that many people would never get the opportunity to do. I traveled all over the world, you know, just, just some really cool experiences that, that we got to be a part of. It doesn't always come down to money, at least in my book. Maybe I'm a little bit different than a lot of people that are out there, but you know, a lot of people think, well, if I'm on a pro tour, I'm going to make millions. And right. it's not always about the, the actual dollars. Um, but I do think that if we didn't have a pro tour for the men's order for the ladies, you know, it, it would be a detriment. Now, do I think that it's the end-all, be-all and the pro tours are the leaders of the sport? No, I, I really don't. You know, they have their purpose, and their purpose is how do we generate money for our players? Right. How do we generate exposure for our tour? Now, the byproduct of that is the sport gets, gets marketing, but, 
you know, I don't think it's necessarily the pro tour's duty or job to grow the sport. You know, can they give back? I, I think they should, but you know, are they the ones that need to be the leaders out there and be coming up with programs and growing the sport at the local level? Yeah, I don't know if that's the role. Right. I think you and I are in agreement with a lot of the issues with the Pro Tours in terms of the value they bring to the sport. As you know, I'm openly vocal about the importance of having successful and thriving Pro Tours and what that looks like. And I think you hit part of the nail right on the head there when you mentioned having something to look forward to. I think having a very visible professional tour is important in terms of not only just younger players, but in terms of how people experience the sport. You know, we see ourselves in the things that we do. Uh, quick side note, how often do you play? Um, I know you've been busy, but in, you, you still play, right? Yeah, I wish I played more than what I do. Yeah. I uh, don't get an opportunity. And, you know, I, I love my, my son, but he, he has me running all over the place when I'm not working. Right. Uh, tracking him all over a soccer field. So. Right. right. But when, when you do play, you are competitive and you do see yourself playing at a certain level because you've been there. And I think you hit the nail on the head when there has to be a picture in our minds of what this sport could really be. And I think having a striving pro tour could be reflective and then create that engagement that can grow amongst people's groups within their groups because they're competitive and we like to see ourselves as certain ways. So, you know, you're on a basketball court, you, you know, you want to shoot like Curry. That goes without saying. So that's important. What's your thought? on the pro climate nowadays. I know it's kind of a touchy subject. You and I both have relationships with the competing pro tours, but what's your take of the two pro tours and what they do in terms of growing or hindering each other? How do you see things? Yeah, I think that's, it is a touchy subject. And, you know, I come from the IRT side of things and, you know, we always thought that the IRT was the end all be all on the men's side of things, just as the LPRT is on the, on the ladies side. Now, that doesn't mean that I'm not a supporter of the WRT as well. You know, and from USA Racquetball standpoint, we want to sanction and have as many opportunities for people to play tournaments as possible. So for us, it's not a matter of choosing sides. It's a matter of, you know, giving players across the country more opportunity to play. Personally, I think it's a great, you know, I think the WRT does a great job of bringing up some of the younger kids that are playing that might not have that opportunity to get out there and, and play the, the tour full-time. Because, you know, unless you've got the money, and we all know that right now the manufacturers are not really uh, ponying up a bunch of money just because of the state of, of the uh, of the sport on the manufacturer side of things. Right. Um, so to get some of these kids that could be the next up and coming Kane, Los Linchucks or Cliff Swains or Sethi Monchicks to give them a taste of, okay, well, this is what it's like to play in front of some bigger crowds and actually make a few dollars. And, you know, I know a lot of people want to compare, well, the IRT makes this amount of money and the WRT makes this amount of money. It's not really about the number. You have the opportunity to play for a paycheck and earn a living off of it, whether that living is $12,000 or whether that living happens to be $100,000. Right. It doesn't really matter. It's the experience. 
you know, and getting more people out there and having more, more events that are out there and exposing just recreational players or club players to the upper echelons. And these guys, you know, I'll be really honest. Like, I'm not going to put a WRC guy in the same breath ability wise as the Canes and the Rockies, you know, they're, you know, the Alvaro's that are out there. Now, there are three or four guys that play the IRT at the top, in the top four, maybe the top five that are, you know, let's be honest, are head and shoulders above everybody else in the world. That's not a knock on the WRT guys. Right. You know, they're head and shoulders about, above the guys that are on the IRT as well. So, and there's nothing wrong with that. You're always going to have, you know, you look at tennis. Right now, you've got Andy Murray and, and Djokovic out there that, you know, at one and number two, they're the cream of the crop. Even if you take guys that are three through eight, those top two guys are head and shoulders above the next, you know, six guys that are on the pro tour for tennis. Right. The same thing in, in the racquetball world. So there's nothing against that, but you know, getting more opportunity for other people to say, hey, this is high level racquetball might not be the number one through number four player in the world. But it's still high-level racquetball. That's exciting to watch. Yeah. And it gets people excited to play and want to come out there. And you know what? Just like you said about you want to shoot a jumper like like Curry. You know, how many of us, you know, back in our day, it was baseball it was huge. How many of us thought, hey, I'm in the World Series, the bottom of the ninth with two outs with the bases loaded. And, you know, everybody's, you know, going to Babe Ruth, pointing towards the fence, yeah. wanting to hit the home run and not knock the game came out of it. But, uh, you know, you've got to have that for racquetball as well, where the guys say, hey, you know what? Man, I'm going to try that shot. I never would have even thought about hitting that shot in that situation. But you go out there and you're playing with your friends and you try to hit it and, you know, probably nine out of ten times you're not going to make it, but, you know, it's fun to give it a shot. Right. So, right. We're the people, and I think that people need that inspiration. Right. Right. Yeah, I agree with you. Um, the difference between the level of play is just a matter of maybe two or three people right at this point. Uh, racquetball did have its heyday where the charts were much deeper. You played in those charts where there was always five or six guys who could take a tournament. It wasn't necessarily a given conclusion that someone was going to win. So I think the difference between the level of play between the two tours does come down to three or four specific players and everything beyond that is just high level play and there's opportunity there. I want to ask you about USA Racquetball having the relationships with the tour, formal relationships. But before I ask you that, what's your opinion on what the two tours should be doing? Should they be operating independently? Should they be working together? I mean, what's your opinion or what would you like to see? Or is it something that they just need to work out themselves and USA Racquetball just needs to be prepared for whatever that is? What's your take? I don't like friction in, in any sense of the tours. You know, I, I wish they could get along and I wish they'd work together. And maybe it was, you know, sort of like baseball has where you have a tiered system where you have, you know, major league baseball, then you have your, you know, your triple A, double A. Uh, maybe it's, you know, could work along those lines, but still working together. Now, do I see that happening? I, I don't know if that's realistic right here at this point. 
you know, just after several years of friction between the, the two parties. But I, I'd love to see them work together. I think it's it's good for racquetball if they were working together. That doesn't mean that they have to necessarily, you know, sit around sing Kumbaya and go to the same place together and have that same mentality. Trying not to step on each other's toes and you know, sanction events on the same weekends and in similar areas, you know, that you know, I, I think they've been pretty good about doing that. Um, so that's a positive. But you know, as far as USA racquetball's role, you know, I, I don't know we have so much on our plate. I, I right now, if I had to take on a pro tour and run a pro tour for USA racquetball, because that was the last thing on on the planet that could do it. You know, of course, we would try to support and, and do that for the guys or for the ladies. But I don't think that's USA racquetball's role to run a pro tour. Right. How about a formal relationship with one of the established pro tours? I mean, how does that work? What's your relationship? Not only with the uh, IRT or the WRT or the LPRT, do you have an official relationship or is it just the organizations kind of acknowledge each other and just hope for the best? How does that work now? That's basically what it is. I mean, we acknowledge each other. Um, we, we've had a formal agreement with the IRT in the past to recognize them as the men's professional indoor tour. And, uh, you know, I, I know that that agreement uh, I believe it's coming to an end here um, in 2017. But, you know, as I stated before, you know, we want to see as many events as possible. So to us, it's not, it's not in the best interest of everyone out there if we're trying to sanction more events and have more opportunity for people to really pick sides in this. Right. And, uh, you know, we were hoping that it would all stick out between the tours and that, you know, sooner or later, you know, there's only so much money to go around. You know, that's the other thing that's, it's really difficult is that, you know, right now the business model of the pro tours is, you know, they go to a city, let's just, you know, we'll call out St. Louis, for instance. Right. You know, the guys come into St. Louis or the ladies come into St. Louis and they expect the tournament director in St. Louis to raise all that prize money. Right. You know, they're not bringing anything themselves. They're not bringing, you know, any sponsorship dollars that they get for the tour is going right back into the tour pockets. It's not helping that tournament director in St. Louis with the $20,000 they've got to raise, you know, for prize money. Right. So that's a really hard business model to keep competing out there. You know, it's not easy to find sponsors. And, you know, on the local level, most of the time, it's someone who just happens to love professional racquetball in that area, and they want those people to come in, whether it's the ladies or, or the men's pro- right. professionals. Right. So I, I think there does have to be a change there where the pro tours need to bring their own money at some point. Right. And maybe that's not full the prize money, but... It's some prize money or that they have relationships with sponsors that can help those individual cities, uh, with the funds. You know, I get it all the time. Well, why don't we use the pro, the uh, portable court more? You know, I would love to use the portable court more. I'd love to set it up in New York and Grand Central Station and take it to Miami for spring break and Daytona Beach and set that portable court up. I know, you know, 
the people that funded that court would love to see that as well. But, yeah. you know, you also look at, at a minimal, and I, I'm saying a very minimal, it takes about $100,000 to set that court up and right. put bleachers around it. And if it's outside, it has to have a tent over it. So if it's outdoors, it's about $125,000 wow. just to do a community court. That has no prize money for anyone that comes and actually steps on the court. That's just to set the court just up. Just set up. So, you know, a lot of people think, well, why aren't, why aren't the pro tours using that portable court? And, you know, there's no charge for the portable court. I mean, that court was donated to USA Racquetball. You know, we don't charge the pro tours if they wanted to use it. But there is a cost in, you know, moving it somewhere and setting it up. And right. Everything that goes into it. You know, it's, it's a great expense. And, you know, I, I'm on Facebook and I read people's feedback. Well, why don't you just get Budweiser or Coca-Cola to sponsor? Like it's that easy. Yeah, I'd not be good as, I, but I'll be honest. We don't have Coca-Cola and Budweiser beating down our door to, to sponsor these things right now. Yeah. Yeah. You know, are we making those phone calls? Absolutely. But what's the return on investment for them right now? Right. You know, I, I, I you know, I try not to get too fired up about it when I read some of the Facebook posts out there that think it's so easy to do some of these things. Right. And, you know, and that goes all the way down to the smaller level tournaments. You know, I get guys say, well, there should be prize money in every division. Yeah. In every tournament. Yeah. I'm like, that means if you rarely, if you ran a tournament on your own and saw the expenses that went into the t-shirts, the running of the club, you know, paying for the balls, doing all this different. These tournament directors are not out there making thousands of dollars. You know, they're barely breaking even, you know, and in some points, they're losing money. Yeah. You know, I, I know the fact that there's, you know, a tournament director out there that ran an IRT event, and he lost $3,000 out of his own savings account to cover the tournament yeah. because they didn't make enough money. Yeah. No, you're absolutely right. I'm I'm glad you brought up the business model because I, I mean, you probably know this. I write about that all the time. Like I, I have definite feelings where that's concerned. And yeah, I am admittedly kind of uh, heavy on the pro tours where that's concerned because I do believe it is their job to change that particular business model. I think USA Racquetball has has a mandate in growing the sport. I think you're charged with the grassroots part of it. But when it comes to alleviating the weight on tournament directors to have a professional tour be run, I think it is on the shoulders of the tours to raise prize money, to be able to kind of think alternatively in terms of not relying on racket manufacturers per se and figure out how they can increase the return on investment for sponsors to alleviate the tournament directors. I think that's the key. I'm glad you brought it up because, you know, I didn't want to get on a soapbox or anything like that. You know, and it's like, I, I don't call it a soapbox. I'm passionate about professional racquetball. I, I just am because it's the front lines. It's what I see from where I stand. And you, right. you, you know it because you played on it. Me, I'm non-traditional, right? So when I say non-traditional, I mean I look at racquetball more than I play it. I play outdoor racquetball. I sometimes play indoor racquetball. I play other sports like paddle tennis. But I, I know and I follow racquetball because of the relationships that I have. So it's important. And from my perspective, yeah, it, the things that I see the most do come from the professional tours because that's what I'm looking at. And in order to gain casual fans, I, I really do think it's on the tours 
And it's interesting to note that something that I didn't know, um, I know the portable court belongs to USAR Racquetball, but I didn't know that you guys do offer that up for free, so to speak. I know it's not free. We know that. It does cost a significant amount of money to actually use that. But I didn't know that you guys just have that as policy. Hey, look, we have this court um, and it's available to entities that can raise that kind of money. That's interesting. Yeah, and you know, it, it is free and we would love to see it used more. I, I know the people that built the court personally and uh, you know, Leo and Sue. Yeah, yeah, Leo. And I know Leo would love to see that court used several times a year. You know, but it comes down to who can raise the money to do it. You know, but I, I will, you know, even though you and I agree that it would be nice to see the business model change for the pro tours, I will defend the pro tours in, in one aspect. Mm -hmm. And that is, it is not easy. No, it's not. <laughs> to go out and find out the outside, you know, the manufacturers, companies that are willing to put a lot of money behind a pro tour. Right. You know, and I, I'll be very honest, Nick and I, <clears throat> as soon as we both came into this position at USA Racquetball, we've been having these conversations with large companies, and it's not easy. However, we are starting to generate more eyeballs. We are starting to do things on social media. You know, people aren't going to give you 125000 or $200,000 for 300 people to sit around your court. Right. How many eyeballs are you generating, you know, outside the 300 tournament players that are actually playing? You know, that's one thing that people, they just think it's easy to go out and get these sponsors. Well, what are we providing them in return? 300 people is a lot of people at a tournament these days, you know, but to the outside companies that are giving money, you know, to get 200,000 for 300 eyeballs, Right. That doesn't, I mean, I think you and I are both realistic. That's, yeah, that's, that's not going to work. That's not return. No, that's not return. There are other things that we can do, and racquetball players are very loyal um, and support the companies that do sponsor things. So, uh, you know, it's about reaching out to them. And I think that, you know, it has to be done on the Pro Tour level. You know, the Pro Tours have to reach out to people outside the sport. Right. You know, and, you know, but it takes a certain type of person to be able to do that. You know, you've got to have a person that has a sales background and knows how to speak the lingo when you walk into these type of meetings. You know, uh, I know that we've got some pretty big names that we've been talking to, right. whether that's the marriage hut or people like Jimmy Johns. Right. And, uh, you know, there are several other corporations that are out there that we're talking to. Right. But, you know, it's not an easy process. No, you know, and if you're not. out there, you know, in Pablo's shoes or you're in Jason's shoes, you're in TJ shoes on, on the ladies store, you know, you're just trying to run events. It's hard enough to just do that. Right. They don't have the staffing to put someone on staff to say, okay, your main purpose is to go out and find corporate sponsors. Right. You yeah. know, I agree. It's very difficult. But that doesn't mean that it can't be done. Right. No. That's also where I see USA Racquetball with Nick and I going out and having these conversations that if we were able to sell the whole entire sport, whether that's indoor, outdoor, pro tours, you know, our association with Lifetime Fitness, you know, all of a sudden you're, you're talking about millions and millions of eyeballs. And that's why 
I feel it's very important that we all come together and start working together for one common cause, because then I can go out and I can talk to the Marriott's and say, look, you know, it's not just 300 people at a tournament. You're going to get all of this extra exposure, whether it's online, it's within the Lifetime Fitness Clubs, or any of our facility partnership clubs that are out there. You know, now all of a sudden, we're making a statement right. that we haven't made before. Right. Right. No, you're absolutely right, man. I think you and I are in full agreement where those things are concerned. And yeah, it's easy to say when we're not in the shoes of the IRT or the WRT, the LPRT. But I will say there does need to be a focus on the business model. I think nowadays with sports marketing the way that it is now, athletes themselves are in very good position to be able to help the tours piecemeal these kinds of things. I think it's it's in the tour's best interest to start actively looking at these things and getting the athletes themselves on board with the athletes themselves being a major part of the business model. It used to be that way when I played the tour. And this is something that, you know, I was in St. Louis for the IRT event just a couple months ago, and uh, Jason and I had a chance to sit down and, you know, just talk about what's the state of the game since I've left the IRT and since he's taken over, and you know, one of the things that both of us see is when we were playing, I had a tournament in Atlanta in IRT stuff. Jason had one in San Diego. Since he had one in New York. Cliff had his in Boston. Derek had his out in Denver. It was the players themselves, the top eight guys, and even a couple into the top 15, that really took the bull by the horns and said, you know what, I at least have to do my part and get a tournament in my hometown. Right. It wasn't about just showing up and, you know, collecting a paycheck. You know, we showed up. We did sponsored doubles. We did sponsored dinners. You know, we came in a day beforehand and went out and did golf outings. We went into St. Jude and to the hospital and did those type of outreach programs. And you know what? Let, let's be honest. We weren't making much more than what the guys are making today. Right. But we knew if we wanted the tour to thrive, we had to invest in it right. as, as individuals. And right now, I'll be honest, and, and I think it's, it's something that Jason's really kind of trying to get his head around is there is no support from the guys on the tour, you know, on the IRT to help Jason out with, hey, you know what? I live in Sarasota, Florida. I play at my club all the time. And, you know what? I have personal relationships with people there that have money that could bring in a stop. Well, you know what? You need to do that. Right. You need to help Jason help right. and, and bring those in. You know, and it makes his job a lot easier. Then he's not chasing tournaments all the time and trying to, you know, put together a schedule. He can actually go out and say, okay, well, if you guys can help me out and put together eight to ten tournaments, I know we have these other tournaments that are outside your areas. Now we have 15 to 18 stops a year, and I don't have to do as much work, so I can go out and I can look for the sponsors outside of the bracket manufacturers. Right, right. It all, it all snowballs into something positive. Yeah. But I, I guess I'm a, I'm a little disappointed with some of the guys that I see on the tour right now that just show up, they play the match, <clears throat> and then they leave. You know, they're not willing to hang out and, you know, visit with the fans and, you know, or do a, an on-court, you know, 
15 minute clinic. And, you know, hats off the people like Robbie Collins, who in St. Louis did just about all of the 15 minute clinics. People asked Robbie, why did you do this? And he's like, you know what? When I was a kid, I had Rocky Carson do this for me. And it inspired me to want to become a pro. And I worked hard and I got out here and now this is my way of giving back. And if I can inspire one kid, you know, by doing a 15 minute clinic out of my, you know, whole day, 15 minutes isn't a lot. You know, that's what I want to try to do. I want to inspire somebody. Right. You know, right. and I wish more of the guys would take, take some ownership of the, of the tour and say, you know what? Am I really pulling my weight here? Am I getting a tournament? Am I giving back? on a weekly basis when I'm out here, right. you know, I think it make a big difference. But that's the difference between being a professional and just being a player. No, you're absolutely right. I think you mentioning Robbie Collins is a point that I want to make. That's really important to have a professional mentality like that, especially operating within the tours. I also think that in order to facilitate the tours, because this is the first that I'm hearing about, and I know Robbie Collins, I didn't know that. You know, that's something that the tours can work with the players more on, because what that does is that actually helps the tour reach casual fans. And I think there has to be sort of a relationship like the tours have to have players that are willing to do this for the tour. And then the tours have to be able to facilitate for the players where that's concerned, like help them along those lines. I'm an optimist where that's concerned. I think there is a lot of money out there. It is very player-centric. It is available to the tours. I just think that has to change. And, you know, it's like I defend the tours as much as I, you know, some people think that I bash them. I don't bash them, and I think there's opportunity there. Um, and I just like to point to it. But, yeah, in terms of the relationship that USA Racquetball has with the pro tours, I think it's important. Uh, putting all that on the shoulders of the tournament directors is not sustainable, man, especially nowadays. It's hard. You know, it's hard. It's hard for a tournament to happen. From USA Racquetball's point of view, I mean, we're here to help. So whatever we can do to try to help different situations, I'm not saying that we're going to bring both tours together and everybody's going to be happy because, you know, there are just two different mindsets out there, and that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. But <laughs> we want to help everyone be successful. And if we can do that, then, you know, we see that we're going to be the beneficiaries of that. But, uh, and so will the sport. So, you know, like I said, it's, it's our mission to try to have as many opportunities as possible for everyone across the country, whether that's pros or recreational or competitive. Mm -hmm. You know, we want to, we want to foster that. Right. So we're awesome. here. I'm always here to listen and, and help. So, you know, but I can't help you if you don't ask. Uh, I'm not going to just, insert myself into a situation without, you know, somebody asking, hey, you know, we're having this issue. You know, we have people right now that are in our state associations that, you know, they don't know how to run a board meeting or they don't know how to form bylaws or become a nonprofit. You know, and these are all things that the national office, it's our goal to provide the help to get them through that. You know, we want the people to do less paperwork and deal with less issues and do more promoting of the game at the local level. So you know, that's, that's what we're all about.
No, that's awesome, man. That's awesome. Well, man, again, man, I, I know it was something for us to be able to work out our schedules to actually be able to finally talk. I appreciate you taking the time to, to talk to me, man. It, it's always encouraging when someone who's heavily involved with the sport wants to take the time out to talk about it. I thank you for that personally, man. So I appreciate it, Jason, man. Thank you. And again, congratulations on your new position, man. I'll be paying attention. I'm looking forward to big things, man. Seriously. Well, I appreciate it. You know, one thing I want to say, you know, and I, I appreciate you making the time for me as well. And happy new year to everyone out there. And, you know, I want people to know that I'm also very accessible. Whether you want to drop me a line on Facebook, you want to send me an email, you can go to usaracquetball.com and get my email address there. I mean, I've got my cell phone up there on, on the website. So I, I want to hear from people because if I don't hear from you, I can't make changes that affect you. So, if you have things that you have ideas or you have contacts or you just want to say hello, you know, please find a way to reach out. I'm as accessible as they come, I believe. All right. So you heard it here. Jason Thorner, the new executive director of USA Racquetball, has an open door policy. So if you have any ideas, feel free to reach out. And there it is. Jason, man, thanks again, man. I totally appreciate it. Thanks, Freddie. You have a good day and happy new year. All right, bro, man. I want to extend my thanks again to Jason Thorner for finding the time to talk with me on the record. Please remember that if you have any thoughts or ideas on being involved with the sport of racquetball, he is accessible. You can reach him as well as find a free online copy of the latest racquetball magazine at usaracquetball.com. And of course, thank you for taking the time to listen to Racquetball Restrung. Keep playing racquetball. Till next time, take care.